Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. Trying to explain the traditional New England town meeting to an outsider has its challenges. That night he said to me, boy, that's pretty Neanderthal. But the next morning he looked at me and said, I don't get the voice where my tax dollars go in Florida. Now I understand. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. I'm John Dankosky. We'll dig into the history and look at the future of town meeting. Also, you ever notice how skiing got pretty fancy? Expensive equipment, high-priced lift tickets, and man-made snow? Well, that's not everywhere. We rely on natural snow. That's an issue. That's an issue. This snow is gold to us right now. But because of climate change, there's less of that gold on the mountain. We'll look at the shifting economics of New England's ski industry. And we'll go to Providence, Rhode Island to hear differing views on the concept of sanctuary cities. Let's celebrate the fact that we're a welcoming city. This is a country of immigrants, but it's also a country of laws. It's next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This is Next. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up, it's a tradition unlike any other, town meeting. And a little snowstorm, no excuse. You just do whatever it takes to do what you're supposed to do, and nor'easters aren't acceptable reasons to not do it. Showing up to make your voice heard. A look at the history and future of town meeting. But first, that late winter nor'easter that dumped snow across New England was a welcome sight to the region's ski areas, which have, for the first time in decades, been seeing shorter and shorter ski seasons. Climate change, of course, is taking a toll. One expert says most ski mountains in southern New England could be out of business in 25 years. So the industry is adapting. And as Fred Bever reports, ski areas in northern New England could benefit. The region's weather has been pretty up and down this winter, including here at Sugarloaf in western Maine. But skier Ken Erickson says it could be worse. Some mountains in New England's southern tier have seen very poor conditions, and ski refugees are trekking north. Well, look at the look at the, this year they struggled. Well, you know how, how we know that when it gets like that, they all come up here, <laughs> and you see them on the lift. Erickson, whose permanent home is in Gloucester, Mass, has been skiing here since the 70s. He says weather volatility is always an issue in the sport, but the threat of climate change frightens him. I have big concerns about, and I can see the season getting very short. And the U.S. ski season is shortening up after a prolonged period when advances in snowmaking were helping to extend it. Daniel Scott directs the University of Waterloo's Interdisciplinary Center on Climate Change in Ontario. He says a continuing warming trend, as well as more extreme temperature swings, seem to have put the brakes on that snowmaking expansion. We may have reached a sort of peak season era in the 2000s when we had a lot of snowmaking penetration, but now the climate has shifted just that much that in these last five years anyway, the average season length has tipped down for the first time in over 30 years. Scott has a sobering analysis for the Northeast. 
even under the most optimistic climate change models, all ski areas in southern New England will no longer be economically viable by 2040. That is not if their revenue streams depend on reliable snowfall, particularly during the crucial Christmas to New Year's holiday week. Lower altitude resorts are most vulnerable. By Scott's account, low snow casualties will include Mohawk in Connecticut, Blue Hills outside of Boston, and some bigger places too, such as Jimney Peak in Western Mass. And creeping into the northern tier, New Hampshire's Attitash is in the climate change crosshairs, as is Maine's Shawnee Peak, the starter hill for many Portland families. And adding snowmaking capacity isn't necessarily the answer. We've seen that in the last couple of years where it's just too warm to even make it or you do make it, but it melts so quickly. So you're throwing money out the door. So, yeah, they'll have to look at how to diversify their revenues. And and not every ski area is able to do that. But one door closes, another opens, right? particularly for the altitude advantage survivors, such as most ski areas in Vermont, New Hampshire, and across northern Maine. That's why one-time New England ski magnate Les Otten, he lives near Maine's Sunday River, is building global warming into his $1.5 billion proposal to revive a defunct resort high up in New Hampshire's Dixfield Notch called the Balsams. It was never a ski resort, but an historic summertime destination that Otten says is well set up to be resilient against climate change, with a golf course and nearby lakes and rivers to bring in visitors outside of the ski season. What we have to do is we have to create a winter that's sort of equal to the summer, and that's the, the balsam's opportunity. The site is in a snowy sweet spot that could enjoy reliable skiing days through mid-century at least. Otten says he doesn't wish ill to others in the business, but he acknowledges that shorter and even terminal seasons at more southerly resorts could send skiers and investors his way. You know, it's a a hard industry to succeed in, and no one ever tried to take advantage or live off the disappointment of another. But it is very clear to me, looking outside the ski industry, that global warming is very real. The effects are real, it's there, and I think you have to plan for it. Major ski conglomerates are responding, buying up geographically diverse mountains to hedge against local weather volatility, while offering winter and summer passes that now give visitors a cross-continental choice of mountains and seasons. Just last month, Vail Resorts announced a big move, purchasing Vermont's Stowe Mountain. And diversification is now the name of the game. Thus, the proliferation of mountain zip lines, canopy tours, gravity coasters, and golf courses. At Sugarloaf, it's host town of Carabasset Valley and a nearby nonprofit called Maine Huts and Trails are spending hundreds of thousands of dollars to add summer to the traditional wintertime destination, jointly developing a comprehensive mountain bike system. Town manager Dave Cota says it's paying off. We'd go to the parking lots at the trailheads. They're filled up even in the summer, and, and we never saw that. A lot of it's second homeowners. I think they've got, you know, they've really got a reason to come back here. In fact, uh, you know, what we're starting to hear is that people are actually buying property here because of that, because of the mountain bike trail development. One telling sign, restaurants that once closed down when the forest leafed out are now staying open year-round. That's Fred Bever from Maine Public Radio reporting. So pretty scary, right? Ski season's getting shorter, but it's also gotten pretty expensive. A lift ticket at Sugarloaf in Maine will run you $95 or so. At Stowe in Vermont, $124. Even at Ski Sundown, a little mountain in Connecticut, it's $60 for the day. 
But at Veterans Memorial Ski Area in Franklin, New Hampshire, lift tickets are just 20 bucks. Instead of a chairlift, there's a rope tow with a T-bar. That's a metal bar that goes behind your thighs, attached to a rope that pulls you up the hill. About 80 years ago, these no-frill ski areas were the rule in New England rather than the exception. So what happened? Sam Evans-Brown, host of New Hampshire Public Radio's podcast Outside In, went to Franklin to figure out how skiing got so fancy. And he took along a couple of ski-skeptical co-workers, producers Maureen McMurray and Jimmy Gutierrez. Here's Sam and Maureen. What did you think when you pulled in? What'd you, when you got to the place, what did, like, your impression? When we, we pulled up to the place, it was, um, you know, definitely off of a pretty uh, rural road. Pulled in, small parking lot, and there was just this, like, was a little log. In my mind, I remember it as a log cabin. I don't think it, it was. It wasn't. And then I could see that thing that you would describe, the T-bar. I could see that in the distance. In the parking lot, there was... Um, there were two cars parked side by side. One had a Bernie sticker and one had a Trump sticker. So I felt like it really embodied the like, you know. New Hampshire. Yeah, like New Hampshire purple. I was like, okay, I can get down with this. And then we walked inside to the lodge. Hi. How are you? I'm well. And your so heart grew three sizes. It really was. I did feel like the, the Grinch. I just walked in and it was like, and then we met Kathy. Oh, Kathy. Can you tell me, tell me your name on tape? Oh, sure. Kathy Fuller. And how? what's to say on your business card? Kathy Fuller, you know, matriarch of Franklin Memorial. <laughs> I grew up here at Franklin. <laughs> uh, actually, I am still the treasurer of the Franklin Outing Club. I make sure their uh, bills are paid. <laughs> so this is Maureen and Jimmy. Okay. So you They're have the a... novices. This is good. You've got, there's a couple of other kids out there, high school kids. You're going to yeah. learn. But the snow's great. They're, they're going slow, and it's good. Okay. Yeah. It looks amazing. This is, like, exactly what we wanted. This is exactly what I imagined in my, my dreams of what a ski lodge is. I love this. Well, this is, this, I mean, it, it was started in 1961 by a group of World War II vets. My dad was one of them, one of the local doctors. It's all owned, The land is owned by the city of Franklin, so they gave us the lease. The Franklin Outing Club has a 100-year lease for a dollar. And so we operate it. One dollar for the for a hundred year lease. We rely on natural snow. That's an issue. That's an issue. This snow is gold to us right now. I haven't seen this many people here in a few weeks now since we opened up on ice. I, I, I think one of the one of the questions that these guys have is sort of like, is skiing a sport that's just for people with money? Absolutely not. Uh, like you'll meet the high school kids out here. Literally, the French teacher bought their $20 ticket for the day. Their ski equipment was free because we gave it out of our donation room. We could find something for you so you don't have to rent the next time, you know? You are selling me on skiing right now. It's fun. A day like today, because plenty of pow, as my grandson said, it's all about the pow. The nar pow. Fired up? I'm excited. I am. My, my mood's done a 180, for sure. Oh my gosh, Maureen. A hamburger is less than $3 here. I was looking at Afro Ski, and I'm getting very excited. It's like, okay, and this is another question I have, is when did these little ski areas start popping up? So I heard about this from a guy named Jeremy Davis. Yep, yep. So I'm Jeremy Davis. I'm the founder of the New England and Northeast uh, Lost Ski Areas Project. Uh, and he goes around finding closed down ski areas all over the Northeast and just documenting like, oh, hey, there used to be 
little rope tow in this backyard. They were a very common type of ski lift in the 1930s and, and even for several decades thereafter because they were relatively easy to construct. And uh, a lot of people just put them up in their fields. If they were farmers, for instance, during the winter months, they could make some extra money on the side by running a little rope tow. Um, during the winter months, um, and a lot of community groups built ski areas, a lot of ski clubs built uh, these rope toes, and they really spread like wildfire all across the uh, the northeast in New England um, in the 1930s and 1940s. And so how many, and when you say spread like wildfire, I mean, how many are we talking about? Yeah, so there would have been hundreds and hundreds of rope toes. So if you look back and cr- across the entire length of history and for ski areas across New England, um, going all the way from the mid-1930s to today, you know, certainly five or six hundred rope toes would be a good estimate, if not even more than that. I mean, I, I'm just trying to imagine, if, and those are probably concentrated in certain spots. So if, like, you're in a mountainous area of New England, there's probably one really close to you. Oh, yes. And, that, and that's what's really, uh, you know, incredible about the whole thing is that, um, you know, you look at uh, the the sheer volume of these number of places, and they were pretty much everywhere um, at that time. were in some towns even had five or six of them a few few different places and it's I think it's really hard for people to to realize how many of these places there were because right now there's about if you look at all the different types of ski areas that are open in New England today everything from privately owned rope toes to major resorts um, including some private ski areas mixed in there as well there's about 110 um, uh, ski areas that have a lift that are operating in New England right now. So I think that there were six times that number, uh, looking at it, that have uh, essentially closed. It's a really huge number, and I've tried to help kind of wrap my head around, you know, how many places there would be and how amazing it would be if all those places were still open. Jesus, that's incredible. Right? So if... The 30s and the 40s were the golden era of these like inexpensive, accessible mini ski areas. The decline started right after that, and there were a lot of reasons. There was World War II. You had the draft. Um, you had wartime restrictions on gasoline. Um, you had travel restrictions. You had the interstate highway system, which made it easier to travel to get to the bigger and the better mountains. Then you had you know increasing competition, which led to this sort of need to keep up with the Joneses. And if you can't invest in new lifts, new snowmaking and grooming, especially nowadays, it's very tough for some of these places to uh, continue to operate. And rising expenses. The insurance costs can be sometimes more than their entire year's profits. And let's not forget the rise of the American vacation. Travel became cheaper. People could afford to travel to Florida, head to Disney World, take a cruise, whatever. Oh, okay. So that's how skiing got fancy. Yeah. And of course, I mean, the thing that gets us now is that it keeps getting so warm in the winter. You know, we have uh, uh, lots of extremes year to year in terms of our climate here in, in New England. And just a few years ago, we had a tremendously snowy and cold winter. And then last year, we had barely any snow. And then this year, we've had some fits and starts, but it hasn't been all that great, except for a few places. And we've had this long January thaw for the last few weeks. Well, from January thaw to a mid-March blizzard, that was Sam Evans-Brown, Maureen McMurray, and Jimmy Gutierrez in an excerpt from their NHPR podcast, Outside In. For more, you can go to outsideinradio.org. Coming up, we'll go to Providence to consider what exactly is a sanctuary city. It's next.
Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate change and global warming. Among the executive orders and policy proclamations made by President Donald Trump is a pledge to crack down on so-called sanctuary cities, communities that work to shield undocumented residents from federal immigration officials, mostly by just refusing to comply with requests for local law enforcement to help enforce federal immigration law. Under Trump's order, these cities could lose much-needed federal funding. The president and his supporters say it's an attempt to improve public safety by rooting out a dangerous criminal element. He even talked about the formation of the Victims of Immigrant Crime Engagement Office called VOICE during his speech to the Joint Session of Congress. But supporters of sanctuary cities say their aim isn't to evade federal law. Instead, it's also aimed at safety. Advocates claim that people here without documentation are more often victims of crime and that when police cooperate with federal immigration officials, that can break down much-needed community trust. Earlier this month, I hosted a live forum about sanctuary cities in one of them, Providence, Rhode Island. I was joined by the city's mayor, Jorge Alorza, who'd been openly defiant of Trump's order, and his commissioner of public safety, Stephen Perry. Also by Leanne Senek, Republican National Committee woman, who's concerned about the city's sanctuary status. We talked in front of an audience at the Providence Athenaeum that was recorded by Rhode Island Public Radio. I started by asking Mayor Alorza to define a sanctuary city. Well, there is, there, there's no legal or set uh, formal definition of what a sanctuary city is. But, you know, I'll say that, you know, this city and this state was founded on the principle of religious tolerance, you know, and, uh, you know, it's been populated by, you know, folks who are outcasts elsewhere. They've always been welcome. They've always been welcome here in Providence. And so that's embedded deep in our roots. I would say that even though there's no set definition for it, Providence has been a sanctuary city for the past 380 years. And, uh, you know, there's been conversation, you know, are we a sanctuary city or are we not, you know, especially in light of Donald Trump's uh, immigration orders. I was on a conference call earlier today with a number of mayors from throughout the country, and uh, we were talking about a conversation, a, a question posed directly to uh, the Secretary of the Department of, of Homeland Security, who he himself you know, did not know what a sanctuary city was. And so, you know, there's been, uh, you know, sanctuaries have certainly been targeted, but since the definition is so ambiguous, the position that I've taken and that we've taken is let's own it. Let's own it. Let's celebrate the fact that we're a welcoming city. Let's celebrate the fact that regardless of where you come from, whether you have uh, legal document, uh, legal immigration status, that you're welcome and you're a part of our community. We value who you are and we value the contributions that you make. I mean, there's so much to celebrate about who immigrants are. Let's not forget that back in 2010, a report was done, showed that 40% of Fortune 500 companies were founded by either immigrants or their children. There's a reason for that, right? Immigrants aren't a random sample from the community. There's something special about the immigrant spirit. You know, immigrants are going to overcome whatever challenge or whatever hurdle uh, they confront. And those are the kinds of folks that we want as part of our community. So the approach that we've taken here is let's own it, let's celebrate it, and let's be proud of the fact that we are a sanctuary city. How do you, in your mind, think about the difference between people who are here in this country legally as immigrants and people who have come here without documentation, people who are living amongst us illegally? 
You know, I, I'm the mayor of Providence, and my responsibility is to look out, to look, look out for, and particularly to look out for the safety of all of the residents of the city. You know, I took an oath of office, and that's to protect every single resident, not just the ones who look a certain way, speak a certain language, you know, every, uh, every person who lives within the city. And so, you know, I want to make sure that folks feel comfortable and welcome. At the same time, the public safety, the public safety piece to this is so important. You know, report after report and study has shown that, you know, cities that have higher levels of immigration also have lower levels of crime. You know, reports have shown that immigrants are less likely uh, to, uh, to commit a crime. What we've also seen is that, uh, you know, we want to, we want to continue, to, continue to provide, you know, high level of public safety and sense of security for all of our residents. And uh, to the extent that we're pushing folks underground, you know, so-called to lay below the radar, to not report crimes, and to um, you know, not call the police when uh, they see something to cooperate with us, it makes us all less safe. And so from a public safety standpoint, you know, I think that you know, it's a no-brainer that you know, us as municipal law enforcement, we should not enforce immigration law because policing today is about building those relationships with the community. And uh, these immigration orders and you know, the suggestion that we should convert local police officers into federal immigration agents, that's going to make it much more, much more difficult for us to police our streets mm -hmm. and uh, much more difficult to ensure public safety. So, so Commissioner, t tell us about the public safety aspect of this. From, from your vantage point, I guess I'll ask, is, is um, Providence a sanctuary city? Depending on, you know, the definition that you, from me, yes. We're a place that we welcome everyone. We're not a place that we'll, we will welcome criminals. And people have, I guess, tarnished the sanctuary definition as those who harbor criminals. And this state and this city has never taken that position that we want criminals to come here and feel safe. So policing, you know, a city like Providence, it is vitally important that we have that trust and bond with our community because we see it, see it so often. People that are here, whether they're documented or not, they don't trust the police. And we try to build that each and every day. And people that are here undocumented really don't trust the police from where they come from because of corruption, because of the relationship they have with the police. So for us to really build public safety, we need that trust and that bond. Not that we're going to turn a blind eye for criminal misbehavior. That's not what this is about. So, so but talk about that, that difference, because I think a lot of people across the country who support uh, orders like the ones that, that President Trump has, has written would suggest that it is indeed criminal behavior to be in the country illegally, that that, that is an act of criminal behavior that, uh, that a local law enforcement official should, should prosecute. They're just wrong. Be, being, in the, being in this country undocumented doesn't make you a criminal. We don't enforce other civil infractions that the federal government has in place across the board. And so by pushing back to law enforcement, whether it's state or local, and I sit at the local level, being at the state level for nearly two and a half decades, we shouldn't be attempting to enforce civil law when it comes to immigration.
I, I want to bring Leanne into the conversation. So I'll, I'll ask you first, when you hear sanctuary city, what do you hear? What is it to you? Well, again, I agree that there is no set definition for a sanctuary city. But when I hear sanctuary city, I think that there is a breakdown of communication between law enforcement at the state level and the national level. And I think that that does a disservice to the people in our state because when we're talking about a sanctuary city and communicating between those office, offices, we're talking about reporting people who have committed crimes. So that people who are not committing any crimes, if they're a victim of a crime, if they're a witness to a crime, they're not fingerprinted, they're not put into the system, they're not put into any type of pool. They can still come forward and feel safe, but people who have committed a crime are fingerprinted, those fingerprints are sent to the FBI, that's then sent to ICE, and they issue the detainer. And those are the people that we should be trying to segregate from our community that have committed crimes. I'm wondering, Commissioner, could you just respond to that quickly, if you would? Sure. So it gets uh, it gets a bit complicated uh, on whether it's a criminal warrant out of ICE and a civil detainer. And so you're right. Anyone that we arrest, we put through a database with their ten print cards, their fingerprints, and it goes and hits a database. And that's how it works. That's how it's been working for nearly a, a dozen years or 10 years. And it's the responsibility of ICE once they're notified that someone is in the Providence Police's custody and will be presented to the court, they need to then go and have a discussion and take that individual in a timely manner. Truth to the matter is, truth of the matter is, they don't, they're not able to do, to do that because they don't have enough resources. And so they're four and five days behind when we arrest someone. And these are, these are people that are here on a civil uh, detainer, a civil infraction. The people that are here and get deported and re-enter, those are criminals and those are criminal warrants in which we've always arrested on and held on. But the civil infractions, because you're here, you overstay your visa, you're, you're here, because you came in, those are civil infractions in which the federal government ought to be enforcing and not the local uh, police. So, so Leanne, what would you like to see different than what is done right now? I mean, what would make more sense to you as far as policy at the local level in a city like Providence? Well, as far as policy at the local level, I think it's important to still report the criminal activity to the proper authorities, but I also think that we need to address the idea that we've blurred the lines between legal and illegal immigration. And when we talk about immigration, people automatically think that because the president has issued this order, because certain people support um, illegal, don't support people coming into the country illegally, that then we're against immigration, and that's simply not the truth. I mean, this is a country of immigrants, but it's also a country of laws. And we have those laws in place for a reason. I think it's very important that we send, as people who are our elected officials, as people who are responsible for our law and order, to respect the law of our country and to make sure that people are following those laws. Otherwise, we do lead to anarchy. At, at what point do we say, okay, this is okay, this is a law that we don't have to follow, because it's a civil law. Does that mean that we don't have to register our vehicles or pay taxes on them? I mean, at what point does that break down and, and nothing becomes important? I, I'd love to hear qu quickly from Mayor Lors on this and then please Sure, Jeff, this, is, this is, this is a, two very important points. You know, the first one is the suggestion that, you know, we're not holding criminals and uh, that we're not detaining them or complying with, uh, with federal authorities. Not only Providence, but every city in the United States if uh, we make an arrest and that person has a judicial warrant you know, for, their for their deportation, 
we hold them just as every other city in the United States holds them. And so we're not letting, you know, people with judicial warrants, you know, go off out into the street. You know, that, uh, that, has, to be, that has to be made clear. You know, with respect to uh, we're blurring the lines, you know, there's, a, there, there's no blurring. There, there really is no blurring of the lines. It's, it's very clear, you know, it's not the municipal police department's responsibility to enforce federal law, right? This is a question of, you know, federal powers and state powers and local powers. You know, this is federal law, and if they're looking to enforce federal law, they should use their resources and their agents to do that. We don't have the resources at the local level. We're already stretched at the local level, and we also have a different philosophy at the local level. You know, our policing strategy is about building relationships, and to the extent that we build those relationships, we're able to keep our communities safe. We're not, in, we're not saying don't enforce the law. We're saying it's not our responsibility to do that, and we have different, different goals and a different philosophy behind it. But I also just heard the commissioner say that it, it, it is true that ICE also doesn't have the people necessary to do their job. So you're strapped at the local level, the municipal level. ICE is strapped at the national level. I just wonder what gives. I mean, because you have laws that you need to enforce here, they've got laws that they're trying to enforce at the federal level as well. And I guess I just wonder where that, where that rub comes in when neither force seems to have the people necessary to do the job. Well, unfortunately, that's where the president's you know, uh, goal or attempt to hire 10,000 or how many, you know, who knows how many thousand new immigration enforcement agents comes from. Um, you know, I, I, I entirely disagree that this should be a priority, but um, if, it, if it is a priority at the federal level, they're expending their resources for it. Uh, it's not work that we do. It's, they're, not, they're, they're not local laws that we, that we enforce. That's Providence, Rhode Island Mayor Jorge Alorza, that city's Public Safety Commissioner Stephen Perry, and Leanne Sinek, Rhode Island Republican National Committee woman. We were talking in front of a live audience at the Providence Athenaeum for a series called Policy and Pino with Rhode Island Public Radio. After the break, you've been hearing a lot about town hall meetings where lawmakers answer questions from sometimes very upset constituents. But that's different from town meeting, a New England tradition that thousands just took part in. We'll look at the history and the future of this institution next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Melville Charitable Trust, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of housing and homelessness. This past Tuesday was town meeting day in New Hampshire. And while some towns rescheduled because of the big winter storm that hit, the Secretary of State there said the law requires towns to hold their local elections on the second Tuesday in March, regardless of the weather. In Newmarket, school board candidates and many voters toughed it out. New Hampshire Public Radio's Jason Moon has the story. If there was a spot in New Hampshire where Tuesday's nor'easter met with the idea of local elections, Ingrid Alberg was standing right on it. Positioned outside the doors to the Newmarket polling place, she held signs supporting her own candidacy for school board as the wind kicked up swirls of fresh snow all around her. 
When I found her, she'd already been outside for hours. But she came prepared. Well, I have my long underwear on, my cross-country ski pants, my gaiters. I just went home and put on the boots that were sitting next to the heater all morning. Toe warmers on the bottoms and tops of my toes. I have two-layer mittens, long underwear on the top, my heaviest fleece, my down jacket, my neck gaiter, a good fleece hat, and my hood up. Wow, you're ready. I'm ready. And so, too, it seemed, were voters. Town officials in Durham and Newmarket reported strong turnout in the morning hours before the storm got too severe. Kimberly Nadu was one of those who came out early to vote in Durham. She's originally from Georgia and doesn't consider herself a New Englander. But she says she has learned a thing or two about nor'easters since moving here. You just do whatever it takes to do what you're supposed to do, and nor'easters aren't acceptable reasons to not do it. That's what I've learned from all the people up here. It was an attitude shared by many who came to the polls in spite of the weather and the confusion over whether towns had the authority to reschedule. Many, like Ray Vincent of Newmarket, seemed taken aback at the idea that they wouldn't vote because of a storm. It's our job. We're Americans, aren't we? That's what America's about, voting. But Ray's wife, Lisa Vincent, also pointed to big-ticket items on the ballot, like Newmarket's $39 million school renovation proposal, as a reason to show up. We've, um, we've got the last of five kids. He's a junior now, and every year we voted for a new school, and we're going to keep doing it until they get a school. Back outside the polling place, I ask Ingrid Alberg if she thinks Newmarket's school renovation project is behind the strong early turnout. I think it's that, but I also think it's small-town America. I don't see those buses coming in from Massachusetts. I see people who care about their community coming out to vote. Maybe small-town America, definitely small-town New Hampshire. That's Jason Moon reporting. Now, while residents of towns like Newmarket cast ballots, other New England towns hold traditional town meetings, which are an entirely different animal. Citizens gather in a church or a school gym to debate, to deliberate, and yes, to vote on decisions that affect the future of the place they call home. Town meeting is a tradition unique to New England here in the U.S., and it goes back to colonial times. But an increasing number of towns are giving up the public debate in favor of a ballot-based system. So is this tradition worth preserving? Vermont Public Radio's Howard Weiss-Tisman went to find out. He sat in on town meeting in Wilmington, Vermont. There's maybe 120 people here. We have 1,400 and some odd registered voters in town. Should 120 of us decide how much money we're going to spend for the next year? That's the question Steve Butler asked himself before he started gathering signatures to get a question on to Wilmington's town meeting day warning. Butler went before the voters in Wilmington Tuesday to try to convince them to hold all of the town's future voting by paper ballot. Butler says holding a meeting during the day cuts too many people off from the democratic process. We're limiting the number of people that are allowed to vote by voting by voice here. If you work for the post office, you can't come to this meeting. If you work for the bank, you're at work right now. You cannot come to this meeting. Do you really want to eliminate those voices? For a little while, the meeting got hung up on procedure. And there was a debate about whether this question of moving all of the voting to the polls should indeed be decided by more voters at the polls. But once the discussion opened up, it was clear that Butler would have trouble convincing the people who showed up to town meeting that there was a better way to get the business done. Jim Burke said he brought his brother from Florida to a meeting a few years ago. 
And Burke said initially, Vermont's long-standing display of the local democratic process didn't really make an impression. That night he said to me, boy, that's pretty Neanderthal. But the next morning, he looked at me and said, I don't get to voice where my tax dollars go in Florida. Now I understand. A lot of the people who spoke said they agreed that the number of people who show up for the Tuesday meetings is pretty pathetic. And there was some talk of moving the meeting to the previous Monday night or to the weekend before town meeting day. But Lisa Sullivan said there were big issues that the town needed to address beyond just changing how people vote. I agree that we do not have as many people represented. We don't have very many young people represented. And I think that that's our community's challenge on how to fix. I don't think that by going to Australian ballot, we're going to necessarily fix that problem. Wilmington's not the only town in Vermont that's dealing with an aging population and with an apathetic electorate. In many towns, the people who come out to sit through an afternoon of debating bridge repairs and purchasing trucks represents a small sliver of the registered voters. Still, Merrill Mundell argued that the tradition of gathering together in a room to debate town issues once a year was worth preserving. I think what you've got here in Vermont is a pretty unique situation. We try to do away with things that are uh, traditional. The truth of the matter is, Every time you nip away at it, it takes away a little bit of the special. I urge everyone to um, defeat the article and we remain with our town meeting system. Butler continued to make his case, rising up throughout the debate to argue for those who can't take time off and stressing that moving all voting by ballot would enhance the democratic process, not diminish it. Laura Stevenson said she wasn't opposed to voting by ballot. But she said that in a world that seemed to be spinning out of control, town meeting was still a place where you could argue with your neighbor and then look him or her in the eye and move beyond the differences. We don't agree, but we do agree that the town is important, that the school is important, that we are important. And in a world of fake news, identity politics, um, you know, you can get your special news in your special bubble. Hey, we have to meet each other face to face. And I think that's more than the inconvenience. Thank you. Butler's move to change over all of Wilmington's voting to Australian ballot was overwhelmingly rejected. That's VPR's Howard Weiss-Tisman. So what's so special about town meeting? And just how much power do attendees hold? Joining me to answer some of these questions is Susan Clark. She's the author of All Those in Favor, Rediscovering the Secrets of Town Meeting and Community, and also the author of Slow Democracy. And she serves as moderator at her town meeting in Middlesex, Vermont. We reached Susan at home on a snowy day. I asked her to record herself on a cell phone, so it doesn't always sound so great. Susan, welcome to Next. I'm glad to be here. Let's start by explaining what exactly town meeting is. Uh, 
How does a Vermont town meeting work? You know, the thing that's funny about town meeting is that it, it has a twin, the town hall meeting that we hear a lot about, don't we, in, in the media. Uh, and that's something where, you know, politicians come home from Washington and uh, hear people out. And a town meeting, an official town meeting, is something very, very different. It's the way we govern ourselves across New England, with the exception of Rhode Island, which has kind of moved away from it. All the New England states use town meeting. And on issues of governance and finance, it's the legislative branch of the government. We are the government when we come into a town meeting. And what does it look like when people actually speak? It, it happens in a very structured way. Explain how you interact with each other and, and how you talk at town meeting. The first time you hear it, it can feel a little bit old-fashioned. Uh, in Vermont, we use Robert's Rules of Order. You'll bring the article up as moderator. I, I, I read the article once. Um, you know, shall the town, whatever it is, adopt a budget of X dollars? And then I ask someone to make a motion uh, and second a motion. And people from within the body will raise their hand. We get their name in the minutes. And then I read it again and then uh, open up for discussion. And we can make amendments. We can change things. And ultimately, we have a, a vote. All those in favor say aye. Opposed, nay. Can you give an example of a time where you saw people really change their minds because of the debate over a specific issue? This year we had an article that was about whether to require presidential candidates to make their tax returns public, you know, in order to be on the state ballot. So it would have been advisory, uh, you know, telling our select board to write a letter to our to our uh, state representatives. Uh, when there is a, a bill in, in the legislature right now about this. And people spoke about why it was important, you know, to know a candidate's finances. It seemed like it was going to pass. But, but then a, a woman spoke up and she said, although she supported this idea, she didn't feel that this was the right venue to make it happen. She felt it was divisive. She just, you know, told people, gosh, you know, if you feel strongly about this, you should write your own letter individually to the legislature. And people spoke up and said, you know what, you just changed my mind. I was about to vote for this, but now I'm going to vote against it. You mentioned this already, and I think that part of the issue with the big national hot-button issues that we see played out in the press every day is that they can be so divisive. And as much as all of us who believe in local participatory democracy uh, think that you can get a lot done at the local level, no matter what your town government system, it feels as though that anger, that divisiveness of the national political dialogue has really trickled down into local politics. How has town meeting changed in the last few, say, presidential election cycles as people maybe see each other as the enemy because they've got an R or a D in front of their name uh, in a way that they haven't in the past. You know, I definitely see differences in civility. You know, we, we've all seen it. But I haven't yet seen a huge shift in, uh, in the way we interface at town meeting. And part of that is because we are neighbors. If I'm driving along and, and slip into a ditch, you know, after a blizzard, who's going to pull me out? How have the trend lines been for town meeting in Vermont? Are more people participating or is there starting to be some erosion in the number of people who actually turn out to take part in this process? I, I think actually the effect of the national political scene has probably been actually to increase uh, just in the last year uh, participation at the local level. In fact, I know it has. We've seen an uptick in people who are running for office at the local level. But, you know, over time, we have seen an erosion. The University of Vermont, Professor Frank Bryan did a 30-year study of town meetings um, across Vermont. He has some 
wonderful data that reveals that there are some very specific uh, reasons that towns continue to embrace or don't embrace a town meeting form of government. One of them is town size. Small towns get much better per capita turnout than large ones. And so as people have moved to larger suburban areas and suburban lifestyles, attendance has declined. This issue of of true participation in the voting process is something that every state in the nation is trying to grapple with slightly differently. You have states that have moved toward almost entirely ballot systems that go through the mail, uh, some that allow you to vote on different races, say, over the course of months of time. You you mentioned California with all of the the ballot measures that you get to, to take part in. It seems as though so much of the rest of the country is moving toward a system that makes access to democracy a little bit easier in the sense that you want to take into account people's lifestyles, how hard they have to work, child care, the amount of time it takes. I guess I'm wondering about those arguments and how you view that in the context of town meeting. If it's going to take you all day and you've got to show up, doesn't this shut a whole lot of people out of a process that they'd probably like to take part in, but they're just working too hard or they can't find someone to watch their kids? Uh, it's it's a definitely an important argument um, to look at, and we need to look at it closely in terms of the data. And I am absolutely all for access, although I will tell you that um, – the harder and harder we work to include people, um, we're not necessarily seeing the same kind of increase in the in the number of people who will participate. Um, I would argue that we really desperately more than ever need empowered deliberative systems now. We see uh, an enormous decline in trust in our government. Um, lots and lots of people can vote, but lots and lots of people don't vote. Um, and sometimes it's access, absolutely. Um, we have to you know, really focus on voter suppression. But there's also a tremendous lack of trust uh, in, in our government. Um, we're also seeing, even at the local level, a real rise in the complexity of issues. Um, so not that they're harder to understand, but they're harder to grapple with. Um, you know, I value my mountaintops, but I also value alternative energy. Well, that's the good guys versus the good guys. These kinds of problems don't respond to the normal way we do political business. They don't respond simply to, to expertise, you know, what's the, what's the right scientific answer? And they don't respond to advocacy, you know, how can I change your mind? What they respond to is trusting communication, you know, iterative back and forth. They said that, then I said that, so then they changed their proposal, and then it came back to me, and I suggested this. That's the kind of, that's the ways we can get through these these complex, wicked problems. It's, it's deliberation. So you're the moderator at town meeting in Middlesex, Vermont. Um, what was it like this year? What, what were the big issues you were talking about? There was a very, very spirited debate about whether we should be switching our town treasurer's position from a one-year position to a three-year position. Lots and lots of back and forth on where the power should lie on that one. We also had a a good discussion about whether or not to um, buy a used tanker for our uh, fire department. What do people say about that? When you've got your fire chief standing up talking about, well, you know, when I've got a full tank of water and I'm trying to get up Molly Supel Road, I can go about four miles an hour. Nobody wants to envision their house on fire when that's that's the case. Uh, Susan Clark is a co-author of two books about this topic, All Those in Favor, Rediscovering the Secrets of Town Meeting and Community, and also the book Slow Democracy. She joined us today from Vermont. Susan, thanks so much for joining us. So glad to be here. Thanks.
And finally, meeting goers in Woodstock, New Hampshire, population 1,400, passed an important bit of legislation on Tuesday on the issue of trespassing chickens. There's no state law regarding the caging of fowl in New Hampshire, and some people's chickens have been roaming onto neighbors' property, even blocking traffic. So an article was submitted to require residents to pen their birds, and it included some stiff fines. Here's town clerk Judy Welsh. A hundred for the first offense, two fifty for the second, five hundred for the third, and then a thousand for, um, I think, any subsequent. It ended after well over an hour discussion. With it would be twenty five dollars for the first offense, you know, one in twenty five dollar increments, so fifty dollars for the second, seventy five for the third, and a hundred for all of, for all subsequent events after that. So how did the vote come down? It was 20, 25 to 16 um, in favor of it. We only had 41. Typically we run, I would say, 60, 70, unless there's some really heated article out there. Then, then we could have standing room only about 100. So if you're listening in Woodstock, New Hampshire, make sure to lock up your chickens. Don't like the new law? Well, you should have come to town meeting. Next is produced at WNPR by Andrea Moraska. The executive producer is Katie Tolarski. The digital editor is Heather Brandon. Production help this week from Kristen Gourlay, Aaron Reed, and the staffs of Rhode Island Public Radio and the Providence Athenaeum. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. You can hear more of his music. Go to toddmerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and WNPR.